Emergencies, we are in a code yellow. Instrument landing system is down. Backup systems won't come up. Every system's dead. These guys shut us down. Attention all controllers, we have a code red alert. We just bought maybe two hours. After that, those planes low on fuel aren't going to be circled. They're going to be dropping on the White House lawn. I want every officer recalled and assembled in body armor with full weaponry in the motor pool in five minutes. It's time to kick it. Alan's what team's gone. Well, maybe they're just a little bit more creative than you think. Start looking for a new miracle. Who the hell is this? We don't need a loose cannon on this deck. You get the hell out of my office before I throw you out of my damn airport. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. They say lightning doesn't strike twice. I spent Christmas last year. They were wrong. McLean? Is this what you were expecting? Nah, this is just the beginning. Bruce Willis, Die Hard 2. Die Harder. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask the question, is it yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again joined by my buddy, Mr. Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero. How can the same guy do the same podcast twice? (laughs) It's it's practically, you know, if I'm going to have a criticism of this movie, (laughs) I think that's really what it's going to be. But uh, I I would, you know, Chris and I, uh, if you listened in our Christmas episode, we covered Die Hard. And I think eventually we're going to get through the entire Die Hard series. Of course. Uh, and uh, Scott Gardner has already put some dibs on Die Hard 4, which he's Excellent. a fan of, which most people are not as big a fan of. He's he's bigger than most. and I am too. I, I generally really like that one. <laughs> I got to say, and you know, we don't want to go too far into that, but I watched that once when it first came out on home video and I was not particularly impressed. And I promised Scott I'd give it another viewing and... That we'd cover it, but I'm thinking that's going to be the three of us. I think, I, I think I don't at this point. I I don't think I can do a Die Hard episode without you in there anymore. So all right, we'll ha- that works for me. We'll have to we'll have to work the timing on that. But uh, I like I said, I know we'll have at least three for Die Hard four. Excellent. Three for four. Uh, but today we're here for Die Hard two, and I'm going to jump right in and give us the plot of Die Hard two. And realistically, I could say. Watch Die Hard one. Well, there's some, there's a couple of things are different. This one is far more convoluted. It it is, although there was some convolution in the first one, but uh, we could we could discuss where the differences lie because Mm. I think that's going to be the most interesting points because where where it matches up, it's not going to be quite as much. You know, you might as well watch the first one. Anyway, on Christmas Eve, two years after the Nakatomi Tower incident. John McClane is waiting at Washington Dulles International Airport for his wife Holly to arrive from Los Angeles. Reporter Richard Thornburg, who exposed Holly's identity to Hans Gruber in the Nakatomi Tower, is assigned a seat across the aisle from her (laughs) in the type of coincidence that can only happen in a movie. Oh, yeah. In the airport bar, McClane spots two men in army fatigues carrying a package, one of whom has a gun. He follows them into the baggage area, 
After a shootout, he kills one of the men while the other escapes. Learning the dead man is a mercenary believed to be killed in action while originally serving in the U.S. military, McLean relates the situation to airport police captain Carmine Lorenzo. But Lorenzo has McCain, McLean ejected from his office. Former U.S. Army Special Forces Colonel William Stewart and other members of his unit establish a base in a church near Dulles. They take over the air traffic control systems, cut off all communications to the planes, and seize control of the airport. Their goal is to rescue General Ramon Esperanza, a drug lord and dictator of Valverde. What? What country was that again? Valverde. Oh, I thought Matrix already cleaned that out. (laughs) That's... That's a that's a podcast for another day, or it was a podcast for another day, but it's going <laughs> to possibly be and is it yours for an even another day on top of that? Oh yeah, let me bring that back. Their goal is to rescue General Ramon Esperanza, a drug lord and dictator of Valverde, who is being extradited to the United States to stand trial on drug tra- trafficking charges. They demand a Boeing seven forty seven cargo plane so they can escape to another country with Esperanza in tow and warn the airport controllers not to try to restore control. McLean realizes his wife is on one of the planes circling above Washington, D.C., with too little fuel to be redirected. He prepares to fight the terrorists, allying himself with a janitor, Marvin, to gain larger access to the airport. Dulles Communications Director Leslie Barnes heads to the unfinished annex Skywalk with a SWAT team to reestablish communications with the planes. Just before reaching the Skywalk, the entire group and Barnes are ambushed by Stewart's henchmen at a checkpoint, and the SWAT team is killed in the ensuing firefight. With Marvin's help, McLean reaches the massacre scene, rescuing Barnes and killing Stewart's men. Stewart retaliates by recalibrating the instrument landing system and then impersonating air traffic controllers to crash a British jet, killing all 230 passengers and crew on board. A U.S. Army Special Forces team, led by Major Grant, is called in. By listening in on a two-way radio that was dropped by one of Stewart's henchmen, McLean finds out that Esperanza, who has killed his captors and is now flying, is landing. With Marvin's aid, McLean reaches the aircraft before Stewart's henchmen, but Esperanza traps him and the antagonists throw grenades into the cockpit. McLean escapes via the ejection seat Mere seconds before the grenades detonate and the aircraft explodes in one of the worst special effects scenes I can imagine. (laughs) But it's memorable. It is, absolutely. Barnes helps McLean locate the mercenaries' hideout, and they tell Grant and his team to raid the location. But the mercenaries escape on snowmobiles. McLean pursues them, but the gun he picked up does not kill anyone when fired. He discovered that the the gun is loaded with blanks, and he is horrified to discover that the mercenaries and most members of the Special Forces team have been in cahoots all along. (laughs) Who would have thought? One of the Special Forces is later killed by Major Grant when it transpires that he was never part of the team and was merely a last-second replacement. McLean contacts Lorenzo to intercept the Boeing 747 in which the mercenaries will escape, proving his story by firing at Lorenzo with a blank gun. A suspicious Thornburg is monitoring airport radio traffic and learns about the situation from a secret transmission to the circling planes from Barnes. He phones in a sensational and exaggerated take on what is happening, leading to panic and preventing the officers from reaching the escape plane. Holly subdues Thornburg with a stun gun. Yeah! 
McLean hitches a ride on a news helicopter that drops him off on the wing of the mercenary plane. He jams the left inboard aileron with his jacket, preventing the plane from taking off. Esperanza, who's flying the jet, is shocked when he sees McLean on the wing. Grant emerges and fights McLean, but the former is knocked off the wing and into an engine, which sucks him in, vaporizing him. <laughs> Stewart then comes out and succeeds in knocking McLean off the plane. He removes McLean's jumper and re-enters the plane. However, he fails to realize that McLean opened the fuel hatch before he fell off. Yes. McLean uses his cigarette lighter to ignite the trail of fuel, which destroys the jet, killing Esperanza, Stewart, and all on board. The pilots of Holly's plane uses the pilots of Holly's plane uses the fire trail to help them land, which the other passenger jets do as well. The passengers are safely evacuated, and McLean and his wife are happily reunited. Lorenzo appears and thanks John. The end. Cue the cue the Christmas music. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know how like the first diehard you could say. Um... Guys pretend to be terrorists, but they really just want to steal what's in the vault. See how much more talking you had to do for the synopsis for this? That's true. Yeah. Oh, man. But, That's... but you could really say is, you know, uh, watch Die Hard, the first one, and just picture the same one in an airport. Well, it's, again, yeah, the the things that are noticeable to talk about this it are the in this are the differences. It is a larger space. Um, it's not confined to, you know... A vertical area uh, we go outside we go off the site of where everything's happening uh, but it's one of those movies that a lot of it coasts by on the goodwill of the first movie of which I have a massive affection for and I believe you do too oh, yeah. um, calling attention to the fact that what's going on is ridiculous is also important as well um, and it's I don't know. It's just, I love watching it. I think it's a really good action movie. But this is where the everyman John McClane already starts to go superheroish. You know, it's it, it's turning it up just that one more notch. Like, I don't really ever feel like in this one the same way I did when he's got to walk around with you know no shoes and the glass cutting his feet or having to jump off the building with the fire hose wrapped around him. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You you never you never really feel this one is more to la, for lack of a better word, this one's more cartoony. Yes. Uh it's it's as 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 unbelievable as certain things in Die Hard were, that was far more grounded than this one was and again, no pun intended. Uh <laughs> you know, we we just get I mean, I think the the ultimate in silliness in this movie is the ejector seat scene. Which was plastered all over the advertising, which is, I mean, it's one of those things that you just remember. I mean, it's it's iconic from this movie. The same way the jumping off the roof was in the first one, the cockpit exploding in this one is the iconic image. Yeah, well, we're, the first one was a perfect movie in my mind. Yeah. This one is a somewhat flawed copy. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I've I've said many times that I'm I'm a mark for sequels. If I have characters I like, I want to see them again, and I don't mind if it's not quite up to the same level. I agree. And where where you can't, you know, sooner or later you can't watch the same movie over and over and over again. Eventually, you're going to get tired of it. I don't care how good of a movie it is. <laughs> 
So this movie kind of gives me a, a, an excuse to watch Die Hard without watching Die Hard. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh... <laughs> yeah, just to watch it in a slightly different fashion. You know, it, it's never going to replace the original as far as quality goes. But oh, I think it, I think it's a little too put upon. I think pe- people just dismiss this one out of hand. Yeah, they talk I about do- how Die Hard and Die Hard with a Vengeance are you know really really good, but everything else sucks. <laughs> And I don't think this movie sucked at all. I just don't think it, you know, it just doesn't hold up to the original, which is one of the all-time greats. Yeah, and again, it's it's one of those things of how far can you push the conceit of the everyman having the worst day possible? It's just, and again, that's partially why it works, though. It's like, of course it would be John McClane having the worst day possible again. You know, just because because he's just, you know, he's a born loser. You know, if he didn't have bad luck, he wouldn't have any luck. Uh, that being said, though, um, you'd see that the time that it's a long movie, too. I mean, it's just shy of two hours, um, but it it's feels actually, it's just over two hours, according to with the with the credits. Yeah, I think according it's to about... Wikipedia, it's one hour and 23 minutes or yeah. 123 minutes. Excuse me. Yeah, it's about 157 before that before the Christmas music cuts in. Um, but in this movie, the gunshots are starting at about 12 minutes. The first movie takes a heck of a lot more time to develop what's going on. And again, with the sequel, you already know the character. So yeah, you can jump more into the plot immediately. And with the amount of stuff that they have to get through in this, they did have to kind of jumpstart it. Um, but you, you can already tell the ridiculousness starting off with, McLean's car is getting towed at the beginning of the movie, like by Harvey Bullock, no less. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, this, you already kind of know what you're in for. And the fact that there are people at the airport and the other cops like realize this guy, they know who John McLean is, you know, anybody that's aware of what's going on in the world. How could you not be uh, aware of it uh, adds to it. So it's that, that level of, that everyman quality is, I mean, it tries to play, have it both ways. It tries to still have him be the everyman, but how can you be the everyman when you stopped a, an international gang of thieves from stealing a ton of money and killing a bunch of people? It really doesn't work. Well, I, th- I think the everyman aspect of it comes from the background a little bit. The, the you know, the, the, the simple things like his car is getting towed. Uh, the fact that, you know, his wife is up in one of the planes and that's really his biggest motivation is, yeah. is to, to rescue her. You know, it, it's not, okay, I consider myself to be a superhero and I'm going to take this on by myself. It's, I don't trust anybody else to see to yeah. my wife home. But he's still, I mean, he'd think, like, Lorenzo is, I mean, he's he's the... Sipowitz? Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't watch NYPD nude, a blue. Um, so I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to me, he's just Lorenzo. Um, it's it's the same exact trope as uh, as the as the principal from the Breakfast Club in the first one. It's how long are you gonna ride this out being a jerk until you realize what's going on? It's it is the same exact beat, and it's it, it's some of it just feels so retread. But the action in it is great. Like you can't fault it as an action movie. Well, you when, know. I, when I talked about it being a pale imitation a little bit, so you have Lorenzo instead of, uh, I don't even remember what, uh, Dwayne. Dwayne, yeah. Instead of Dwayne. Then you have the simple janitor instead of 
Powell. Um, yeah, you have the the non-threatening black friend. <laughs> yes. Uh, but Powell's uh, but, in but, it. But, but what you have in this that's a nice twist is instead of having the FBI agents who turn out to be just dopes, yeah. you have John Amos who turns out to oh. be a double agent. Broke my heart the first time. That come, That's John Amos, man. The father from Good Times, man. That's I know. I don't want to see him be a bad guy. He was a Beastmaster. But that was, I thought that was a great touch because I did not see that coming. I don't know if I No, I don't did, think anybody did, did the first time. Because they are, I mean, those guys, like those are the alpha male guys that you send in and they're, they got McLean's back and they're ready to rock so, and roll. Because you say, yeah, you are an asshole, but you're my kind of asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it is shocking. I mean, it's, you don't see that swerve coming. No, not at all. So, I mean, it does have that going for it. I mean, this movie is just sort of a, a feast for character actors, too. Um, you know, Harvey Bullock, uh, then uh, Sipowitz. Uh, you get the Terminator in here. Uh, Robert Patrick's yeah, one of yes. the mercenaries. Uh, John yeah, Amos, de- John yeah, Leguizamo. Death from Bill and Ted. Yep, Bill Sadler, who's a, a massively underrated character actor. Um, and he's a pretty pretty good bad guy in this. Yes, he, he plays a very credible opponent to John McClane. And it, it to me, it's reminiscent in some ways of Gary Busey to Mel, yes. to Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. Yes. Like you're just waiting for the final throwdown between the two of them. And when you get it, it really does not disappoint. No, it's, I mean, they, again, the action in this is, is fantastic. And Rennie Harlan had only, I think he had only done Nightmare on Elm Street 4 as a major motion picture before this. Uh, that was right. Re- yeah. Rennie Harlan. Uh, so it's, I mean, he's, he's competent in terms of filming the action. I'm sure he had a lot of second unit help or whatever, but you can't fault the way the movie looks or the way the action is shot or the special, well, some of the special effects. Um, no, I, yeah. I have to say the ejector seat, even though they made that the showcase scene, I think that's a very poor special effects. That is so obviously, yeah. I don't know if it's... it was blue screen or green screen back then, but it's whatever it is. It's so obviously a screen. Yeah, it's it's some bad compositing going on, and again, that was the time. I mean, you know, the amount of money they spent on this. I mean, the explosions all look great, though. I mean, those are practical explosions. When the when the bad guy's helicopter uh, plane blows up at the end, I had a hard time telling did they blow up a model or did they blow up a full size mock up of a plane because it's a pretty goddamn big explosion. Yeah, I, I I think you know, with the exception of that one shot. Which, you know, it, it just, to me, it stands out more because they did make it their highlight moment. If they had tried to highlight it, it probably would have been hidden better. But since I saw it on every commercial, yep, it was like, really? That's, that's what you're showing us? Because that looks fake, man. Yeah, it does look pretty poor. But, I mean, it, it still kind of works. Is good. Yeah, it still kind of works, though, because they... Cause because Bruce Willis sells it with the oh shit as he's falling, you know, it's. And I think in in this one they, I think they said you know we really pushed the envelope in the last one. This time we're not we're gonna even we're, not, we're gonna leave the envelope way behind us and not even worry about it anymore. We're just doing whatever the heck we want now. We're not. If you don't believe it's real, that's fine. <laughs> just run with it anyway. Well, you kind of have to. I mean, you, again, if they had done everything beat for beat with the same level of groundedness, then people really would be saying, well, it's the exact same thing. You know, it does, it does change just enough, um, to have it be its own thing. But 
I mean, could you could you watch this one individually and still get the same enjoyment out of it? If if you watch Die Hard two in a vacuum, does it still work? That's the thing. As an action movie, maybe, but you're not going to have that that baggage, that cachet from the last one. So I don't I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I, mean, you, I don't think you can have the connection to his character that you did. Yeah, I mean, there's really no time to to develop it. Really, I mean, that's why that first movie starts off, you know, as slow as it kind of does. You know, you have to get, you have to have the the reconnecting of of John and and Holly, and oh, yeah. they can't reconnect because stuff's going south. From a character point of view, there's just kind of the thought process of you already know who these people are. You saw the first movie. Yeah. If you didn't see the first movie, why are you watching this anyway? I, <laughs> you know, action... I think that's I think that's the 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 attitude they had when they made it. Yeah, but again, action movies always sell. You know, there's always a market for it. So, I mean, I could see somebody that wasn't old enough to see Die Hard, the first one when it came out, you know, being taken to Die Hard 2. Oh, by, by this time, though, VHS was well underway. And I, I'm thinking even if you hadn't been old enough, before you went to see this, you saw Die Hard on, on video. Yeah, probably. It's... I don't know. And, and, you know, but they really didn't do anything to develop John's character. They didn't do anything to develop his relationship with Holly. They didn't do no. anything even to develop Thornburg. They just, you know, he, they introduce him and it's like, well, you know he's an We don't have to explain to you what yeah, he's Yeah, which is fine. Is. I mean, that's what his role is to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, but, but again, it's like, I don't, I don't dislike watching this one. I have a good time every time I watch it. Sometimes the plot is just too much. I mean, it's a really convoluted plot, I think, um, for, for a diehard movie. And again, that's saying something compared to where things will eventually go. Um, well, if you, if you want to bring it down to its simplest terms, I don't think it has to seem that convoluted because in, on its simplest terms, it's, uh, mercenaries come into the airport to hijack a plane to bring this foreign leader who's being extradited home. That's okay. really it in that, a nutshell, isn't that, it? That works. It just it doesn't feel like that when I'm watching the movie just because of how everything's parsed out over the course of the movie. It just feels like it's so much bigger than, you know, just the simple heist that the first movie is. It, it feels bigger. And again, it's the sequel thing. You have to go bigger. You know, how many sequels go smaller? They really don't. Especially oh, during this, the night. This 90s. one, yeah. This one, I think that was that was the, the mission statement on this one was basically as much as you can do the same movie, only bigger. Yeah. And it certainly, it certainly is bigger. Um, yeah. It's, it is a fun movie, though. I mean, you get, if it's one of those ones that if it's on, I'm not changing the channel. I get sucked yeah. into it. And it's one of those ones where I, I really enjoy the Die Hard franchise uh, to a certain point, um, especially the first the first four movies. I, you know, I could sit down and, you know, on a, on a slow day, be like, you know what? I'm going to spend some time with John McClane today and spend eight hours with him. And I, I'm not going to be upset. Uh, I'm going to enjoy seeing what happens to him as ridiculous as the films do get. Yeah, I, I well... You know, my, my experience my experience is similar with the first three. Again, I only saw the fourth one once. I was not a fan, but I will be eventually giving it a second shot. We, we will discuss Die Hard with a Vengeance in a couple of months, I'm sure. 
And then uh, we'll get to the fourth one, and I'll rewatch it, and I'll see if my opinion is has has changed at all. Yeah, it's I, I definitely think it's worth a rewatch. Um, you have to keep in mind I don't think it was originally written as a Die Hard film, so. Nor was this. Really. I remember when this movie was out, I didn't pick it up, but I was in, like a uh, you know like a, a just you know a, a general type store. And they had a, a rack of books, and they had a book there, and it, it actually had a sticker on it. It was it was not originally on the cover, and it said you know that it was basically it was the novel that Die Hard Two was based on. Okay, and it now, was not see, a John McClane story. All right, and neither was the original I one. Tell you what the name of it was. Um, okay, I'm I'm intrigued by that because, again, the Die Hard franchise is not one where I've delved into the behind the scenes stuff a lot. Because um, with them, it's just sort of I'm content to just let those movies sort of wash over me and I get sucked into them. But now I'm intrigued and uh, I'm going to have to go do some research on that because uh, I'd be curious to see what the source material was and how much how different it was. Um, and again, this mo- this one came out. And this was still before we started to get the Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard on a boat, Die Hard in a blah, 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 blah. So it's, you know, it was before the that sort of thematic element really came in heavily into play as aping itself, which I guess um, makes it slightly more original. Which means this podcast could easily be, is it Die Hard? Oh my God. Instead of, is it yours? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one because then, you, then you're at a five movie scale. <laughs> that's that's. Uh, I think we'll leave it as is it, as it as is it yours. Yeah, but it could uh, have been. It, oh yeah, um, I don't know. This it's hard to talk about this one because it really is so much of treading the same ground. Uh, I mean, it just I, I don't know how much more there is to add to it. It's it's a it's a fun action movie. It carries more weight if you're a fan of the first Die Hard. Um, to, to a large extent, watching this movie, to me, as a non-gamer, feels like what I would want it to feel like if I were playing a Die Hard video game. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, um, not a lot of time with the characters. Just give me some new new uh, settings, new bad guys to fight, a new big bad. And let me be John McClane with the, with the joystick and, you know, controlling him. And, and let me fight the various bad guys in various situations and see if I could get out of it. And that's what I get from this movie. That's the feel I get, and 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 that's not meant as a criticism. No, and that's definitely what the structure of this is. Start in this place, something happens. We have to move on to the next place. Something else is going to happen. You have to attack. You have to kill these guys, or you have to find this thing, or you have to fix this thing, or do this thing. It is very much a, a bunch of action vignettes tied together through the overlooming threat of the planes potentially crashing and not being able to stop these terrorists from accomplishing their goals. Um, that's not a bad way to think about it. I like that. And that's really before that sort of mode of action movie story making kind of came into vogue. Cause you see that a lot with the action movies. Now it's really just uh, minion fight, minion fight, minion fight, boss battle. And that's kind of what, a lot of action movies do without any sort of narrative thread or any sort of cohesion running through it. Um, and this one certainly has a narrative thread and cohesion, whether or not it works for you is another story. Well, I, I think Die Hard and to a lesser extent, Lethal Weapon. I think the two of them kind of set the mold 
for the modern action movie. Yeah. Um, I can't remember where I read it. Um, and I read it a long, long time ago. Um, I, I don't know if it was online or in a magazine, but there are certain benchmarks in terms of action filmmaking. Um, really, you start with the original Bond series where you'd have two or three large set pieces spread out over a long film. And that was crazy, unbelievable. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. Then we have to advance quite a few more years before we get to First Blood. First Blood was sort of the first sort of more relentlessly breakneck, nonstop tension and action throughout the course of the running time. And then you hit Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, and that's where things go off the off the rails in terms of the amount of action that's pumped up and the amount of thrills that it's supposed to give you. Um, yeah, I mean, Lethal Weapon and Die Hard definitely has a lot of character development, but there's rarely a point where you're not on the edge of your seat waiting for the next action moment or getting swept up in the next action moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you think about it, before the movies that you talked about, uh, most of the action-type movies were more of a genre piece. You'd have action cowboy movies. War, cowboy, action western. War movies. You wouldn't so much have an action movie set in the current day and age. More or less in the current day and age, you'd be looking more at film noir, yeah, which wouldn't be action so much as, uh, you know, as, as character building and, you know, uh, mood setting. The, the, the film that comes to mind to me right off the top of my head is White Heat. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, you'd have a drama punctuated with bits of intensity, but nothing where once you're introduced to the characters, it's kind of put your foot down on the gas pedal and go. Yeah, the, the roller coaster. Yeah, that was not, not really a thing. I mean, the first real roller coaster movie is probably Jaws. <laughs> you know? That was the advent of the blockbuster, really. And that was a very different type movie than this, though. I think this... Oh, yeah, you know, well, that's... There, there were many imitators of Jaws, but I don't think there were as many successful imitators of Jaws as there are <laughs> successful imitators of Die Hard. No, Successful well, imitators of Lethal Weapon. Well, with an action movie, it's a, it's a lot easier. I mean, look at the formula that was popularized in the 80s. The buddy cop formula, the cop on the edge formula, um, the, the high concept, you know, the elevator pitch action movie. You know, can you can you tell me what the pitch is in 30 seconds and, and can you deliver on it? And that's what we got. I mean, the, the glut of direct-to-video <laughs> and low-budget action movies during the 80s and 90s, I don't think we'll ever see again. Well, speaking of that, have you looked at a box office mojo on this? I have not. I purposely stayed away from it so I could test my brain. All right, so let's test your brain. We have the budget... We have the domestic gross, the foreign gross, and obviously the combined gross. Okay. All right. So this movie came out in 1990. The first one was 88, right? 87? Yes. Okay. I believe 88. And that was a relatively low budget. It ended up being a pretty damn big hit. Um, Okay. Budget, I'm going to say for 1990, with the amount of explosions, the fact that this was coming off a big hit, I'm going to say the budget was $40 No, you're a little low on that. Really? Okay. 
Budget is seventy million. Wow, that's a huge budget for nineteen ninety. Huge. Um, okay. All right. The first one. Let's see. Um, I think the gross for the first one was sub one hundred mil domestic, right? Um, this one, I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say that the the. I'm gonna say. Uh, I'll say 160 domestic on the on the gross for this one. Uh, you're a little high on that. 117. Okay, so it's kind of it improved the last one, but not as a huge a leap as I thought. Um, let's see. Would Willis have been a worldwide draw at this point? I don't know. Um, I'll say the combined foreign. I'll say 100 million foreign combined. 122. Okay, so I was off overall by about sixty million for the overall so, gross. Yeah, seventy million budget worldwide, gross two hundred and forty million. That's still a pretty darn good return on your investment. Yes. Um, yeah, I see. Again, it's maybe it's just because I love these movies so much. I'm putting more more stock in their actual box office take. But again, those numbers for 1990 are nothing to sneeze at. I am surprised by the budget being seventy million. Because uh, that's a really high budget for that time period. Yeah, back then it was only a rare movie that would scrape a hundred million. Uh, rare, very rare, in fact. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking T2 was the first one to really. T2 was bananas. Yeah. But uh, I, you got to keep in mind too that this now comes in a different setting where home video is a big deal as far as their. Yeah, a as lot of their, their their eventual take on the movie. Yeah, so none of that is factored into this. No rental profits and um, through sales for the for the VHS. Yeah, I mean after they saw what they could do with Batman, Batman was the first major VHS release that was priced to to own. Uh, so I'm sure that this had a massive sell through when it hit home video. Yeah, I I think this was one of the ones that was, uh, you know, was was. Price to sell when it came out. Yeah, there's a there's a yeah Batman, the Die Hard movies, uh, Young Guns, some uh, uh, titles that you you know Young Guns. It's like yeah, I love that movie, but that was one of the biggest VHS sellers of all time too when it came out. It's like surprising what people latched onto at the time. Yeah, that's true. But let's see, is there anybody else in this that we haven't talked about? I just want to. I don't want to. Uh... Franco Nero as the. Uh... As the uh, leader of Valverde, there. Mm-hmm. Still looking pretty, pretty young, pretty spry. Who else we got here? We got uh, William Atherton. Obviously, we talked yeah. about Reginald, Reginald Vell Johnson yep. is in this, but I For think it's just second. like a phone. Oh yeah, phone call, and that's it. Yeah, it does. It does lead to one of the best jokes in the uh, the movie when the when the girl that's working the fax machine helping John out. Asks him if he wants to get a drink in about an hour, and he flashes his wedding band and says, "Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts." Yeah, it's right. like that's great. He still has that charm, man. It's you can't deny the swagger that he had in this one. He was the everyman, but man, you just you like seeing him do what he's gonna do. You know, he's the only good cop, and no one will listen to him again. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's where it also gets goes a little bit off the rails, but you you have to kind of just suspend your disbelief on that uh, it, it, that that they would be that unwilling to 
you know, to, to put any credence in what he says at this point is almost yeah. ridiculous. And anytime you have cops being willfully ignorant to other cops is that kind of pisses me off. But again, movies. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I, you know, I, I don't remember anything about the soundtrack in this one, particularly. A lot of, lot of reused score. Um, I can't remember if it was the same. Let me look that up. Uh, Michael came and did the me. Okay, so I think the first one too, didn't he? I think so. Let's check that out because I want to be factual. Uh, it's gonna take me forever to find it, so whatever. Um, yeah, but it does sound like there's a lot of reused score from the first one. Uh, there's no. There's no iconic sort of music in this, like when uh, Gruber and the rest of the gang get inside the vault and the Ode to Joy plays. Like, mm-hmm. there's nowhere to really put that in this movie. Um, again, it's slightly darker in terms of, you know, the the terrorist threat in this one. So it's that that sense of, you know, there's no Ode to Joy moment in Die Hard 2, really. No, there is you not. don't you don't want to see these bad guys. Like you don't have fun watching these bad guys. Like I can have fun watching Hans Gruber and um, Theo and those guys in the first one. I don't have like these guys. The bad guys in this are are bad guys. Yeah, you know, Hans Gruber for everything that goes on and as ruthless as he is, has a level of charm and charisma to yes. him that nobody in this movie can match. It's very much more standard 80s bad guy trope. Yeah, it is. But but they do it in a way where they are, you know, you do feel very comfortable rooting against these guys. It's not it's not that you have a level of apathy because you don't. You, no. you, you know, you want to see William Sadler go down oh, and yeah. you want to see John Amos go down and. For the, you know the rest of the crew, they're they're pretty much even even Robert Patrick. They're more uh, they're more faceless. Yeah, you know just just drones. Well, you got to have those guys. You got to have the the meat for the grinder. Uh, yeah, but it's here's the thing. If if Hans Gruber's plan was to still blow up the building and not kill anybody, I'd be like, all right, get away with you, get away with that money, man, go for it. Um, <laughs> but he skirts that line of being just bad enough. There's really there's no bad guy that you can really root for. You just you really just hate them in this one. Yeah, absolutely. But now, do you take that hatred and take your love of John McClane and ask yourself, is this Jaws? And <sighs> I'm going to give the Jaws scale. I'm going to interrupt you before you have a chance okay. to answer. All right. Jaws, an all-time classic, almost a perfect movie. Jaws two, really really solid. Very little in the way of mistakes. You know, just. You know, even though it's not an all-time classic, it could still be termed as really, really good or even great. Jaws 3, watchable, enjoyable, but nothing particularly special. And Jaws 4, bad. All right. Uh, this one really, the same way Jaws, the way Jaws 2 is to Jaws 1 in terms of conception and um, the way it's pulled off, this really is the same thing. Uh, so this one, I mean, of any sequel so far, this one is right in line with that same sort of scale. Um, on a good day, I would still give it a Jaws just because I love this franchise. But if I'm being honest with myself, 
Die Hard 2 is Jaws 2. Okay, well, if if you, uh, I'm sure you don't remember, but if you remembered, the when we when we did the Jaws movies, I ranked Jaws 2 as Jaws 3. <laughs> well, I'm going by your scale. Right, no, I got you. Um, as far as the stale go, scale goes, uh, for me personally, I'd say this is a Jaws 2 because I can enjoy watching it. The retreads don't bother me at all. And and it's just, you know, another fun time with characters that I know. Um, but looking at it as a critic, looking at some of the lack of originality. It of some stinks. Of it, looking at some of the lack of character moments. I think I have to give it a Jaws 3. Oh, okay. Even though I don't, for me personally, it, it ranks higher. Uh you know, and that, but that's, to me, there's almost an element of guilty pleasure to that. Okay, I don't believe in guilty pleasures, but uh, yeah. Well, guilty pleasure to me is first of all, I don't feel guilty for anything, but I define guilty pleasure as something that you like, but you know you're not supposed to like it as much as you do. <laughs> all right, I guess I don't have that hang up. <laughs> so, looking at it as purely a critic, then. Like I said, I, I would uh, I, I would go with Jaws 3 on this. All right. So we're not in agreement on this one, folks. Very rare moment. <laughs> then again, very, very rare. Uh, but again, the pretty high marks overall. I mean, this is oh, it's either going to be a really, really good movie for you or something that you can throw on and have in the background and still enjoy kind of movie. All right. And that's it for Die Hard 2. So thank you all for listening in. Uh, we have a couple of uh, iTunes reviews. I'd love to get some more. So please feel free to hop on and do the, excuse me, and do that. Yeah, and say how awesome also, I am. Also, uh, you know, if, if you have any comments, questions, movies you'd like to see here covered, uh, the email is jawspodcast at gmail.com. So I look forward to hearing from people. Chris, before we go off, as always, tell everybody where they can find you. All over the Two True Freaks Network, I am on uh, the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, where I cover horror movies with a couple of the other guys from the network. I am on a show called Cast Protection, covering the Netflix show Stranger Things and things that are tangentially tied uh, to that universe. And I am also on Weekly Heroics, uh, where I cover the current superhero-slash-comic-book-related television shows with Scott McGregor. And I'm always popping up on things like Back to the Bins and Is It Jaws and just generally, you know, being a pimple on the butt of the network. So uh, feel free to check out my <laughs> stuff and, uh, you know, give it a listen. And if you like it, tell a friend. If you hate it, tell two enemies. So there you go. There you go. And everybody, thank you for listening once again and see you next time. yippee ki Mr. Falcon. Who is it? Come here. Captain Lorenzo? Yeah. John McClane. Yeah, yeah, I know who you are. You're the I just broke seven FAA and five District of Columbia regulations running around my airport with a gun shooting at people. What do you call that shit? Self-defense. Oh, what, you think that L.A. badge is going to get you a free lunch or something around here? No. Maybe a little professional courtesy. <laughs> In an airport on Christmas week. You got to be kidding. Okay, courtesy. How about just being professional? Your boys just walked away from a crime scene, Captain. You can't wrap this thing up in 10 minutes, and you know it. You got to seal the area off, take pictures, hey, dust hey, for hey, prints. Don't lecture me, hotshot. I know what I'm doing.
We're going to dust it down. We'll take all the pictures. We'll uh, sweep for fibers. Well, you don't do this. After three or 400 other more people go through there, Christ, you'll be lucky to get a print from one of your own people. Just shut down that area and send oh, your people just in. shut the area down. It's that simple. I'll just shut the area down. Yeah. And I got everybody from the Shriners Convention to the goddamn Boy Scouts traipsing through here. I got lost kids, lost dogs, not now, later. I got international diplomats. I got a reindeer flying in here from the petting zoo. But John McClane, he's got a little problem. Hell, let's shut down the whole airport. Now, what do you think they're going to say upstairs when I tell them that? Why don't you pick up the phone and find out? Because I don't need full forensics to tell me all this was was some punk stealing luggage. Luggage? That punk pulled a Glock 7 on me. You know what that is? It's a porcelain gun made in Germany. Doesn't show up on your airport x-ray machines here, and it costs more than you make in a month. You'd be surprised what I make in a month. If it's more than a dollar ninety-eight, I'd be hey, very McLean, surprised. Hey, McLean, don't start believing your own press, huh? Yeah, yeah, I know all about you and that Nakatomi thing in L.A. But just because the TV thinks you're hot shit, that don't make it so. Look, you are in my little pond now. And I am the big fish that runs it. <laughs> so you cap some lowlife, fine. I'll send your captain in L.A. a commendation. Now, in the meantime, you get the hell out of my office before I have you thrown out of my goddamn airport. Carmine, let me ask you something. What sets off the metal detectors first? The lead in your ass or the shit in your brains? 